Well, I don't know if I have necessarily a favorite best part, but I will say with one like glaring um, sort of one, uh, one glaring sort of example set to the side, it's been a really fun sports weekend. Um, unless you're a Dodgers fan, I guess. Um, or, you know, it I was heartbreaking. I didn't get to see any really of uh, this, the CU game uh, until the very end. I was at a friend's house with, uh, had it recorded. That was heartbreaking. But then the Cougars beat Stanford. Go Cougs, go Cougs, come on. All right. Uh, that never gets the amount of applause I think it should get. Um, uh, yes, once. Um, so, so here we are. We are uh, on this series. We've been working our way through the um, long story short. What we've been trying to do is we've been trying to, as we step into this year, we're wanting to be shaped by the story. We're seeking to say, let's see if we can try to hold the whole story, tell the whole story from beginning to end. And today we get to do something uh, really significant. Today we get to ever so briefly talk just a little bit about the most talked about, written about, dreamt about, sung about human being that there ever was. And somehow, I'm going to try to find a way to do that in 25 to 30 minutes. And what's been so hard about that for me, even in this week, is realizing there's a reason why Jesus is the most written about, talked about, sung about human being in all of human history. There's so many different ways that I could go about talking and preaching about uh, this story today. And if I were going to do it again tomorrow or next week and the week after that, I'd probably be 52 different ways that I would get to just tell the story of Jesus. So uh, today is not the only most definitive way. It just happens to be the way that I settled on as I was running out of time. But before we do that, let's pray, shall we? We're going to do our very uh, best to sort of summarize how we got to this moment, um, and we'll talk a little bit about Christ, this um, eighth, eighth C in this story. Let's, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, pulling and tugging on our hearts and bringing us here. For most of us, there's been something really wonderful about this weekend. Sometime we've had a chance to look at the leaves drop and realize we'll just do it later. Sometime we've been able to sort of be out in your creation, connect with people, enjoy the gift of leisure in front of a TV. In the middle of all of that, in ways that we've not seen, you've been tugging on heartstrings and our minds and our imaginations to bring us to this moment right here where we've lifted you up in praise. And we'll pray. And then we get to come to you in the preaching. Lord, will you come to us? You help us to see you in a fresh new way as we work through today's text. Prepare us for right thinking and right living, not because of what I say, but because of who you are our Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, it's almost unavoidable 
as I work my way through this, and I keep on getting longer on the summary, I'm going to try to crush it fast today. Okay? Let's, let's see how I do. So we started this story in Genesis with the creation. And what we heard in creation simply was this. God, with his, the power of his word, made it all good. He made us. He made us to be in relationship with him and with one another, and even with the earth itself. And it was very good. But then there was a catastrophe. And literally the second page of the Bible, what we see is, is human beings, they reject what was good and right and beautiful about that. And they, they chart out a path for themselves. And in that path, there's deep consequence from that catastrophe. The Bible consistently says that we now face real and certain spiritual death. We have fleshy life, but we carry around with us the consequence of death. And now everything has been marred and uh, besmirched, I love that word, besmirched by this catastrophic moment. And God could have reasonably said, I'm going to start all over. But instead, that's, that's not what he did. Instead, what he did is he, he established a, a covenant with one family. This family, who's ahead of it, was a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing to the nations. Your, your family line, the, the nation that comes from you, is going to be my plan to make this all right. You are going to be the people of my plan. I make this covenant with you that regardless of what happens, you're going to be the people of my plan. Well then, fast forward several hundred years, now this one family now is a nation. And what we see over the next several books and chapters of the Bible is we see that that God is forming a community out of this covenanted nation teaching them how to learn and live and walk in a way that is separate and apart and different and holy from everything else that's around them. And he gives them this thing called the law. And the law is his way of saying, I will always be your God. You will always be my plan. But there's also a way for us to live together. And for as long as you live in that way, we'll continue to experience and know the blessings of what it's like to be the light of the world. So he gives them the law, and then he invites them to know more of who he is and to step into it. And he says, now it's time for you to step into this promised land I have for you. And they they go through this conquest, seeking to eradicate the land from everything that was not holy as they're getting started as as a new covenanted promised people. And it turns out they They fail. Consistently, as they go through this conquest, what we see is, is uh, everything's good. They forget about God. They turn from his ways as a punishment. To call them back, God lets them be conquered, and they cry out, and they get a prophet, and uh, pardon me, a judge, and the judge redeems them and helps them sort of chart a new way, and everything's good, and then they forget, and then they're conquered, and then they cry out, and then everything's good, and then you get the rhythm. In the middle of all that mess, they cry out and say, Lord, I, we know you've said you want us uh, to, be, to be yours. We want to be people, you want us to be the people of the plan, but what we really want is to be like everyone else. 
You've invited us to be separate and holy and unique and godly and beautiful, but what we really want is a king like all the other things we see around us. And so the story then shifts to the establishment of the crown and the kingdom. It's the kingdom of Israel, and it's a really fascinating story, and eventually it breaks down into what Carl preached admirably well, chapters upon chapters last week, um, was called Conceit. And conceit was this rhythm that I've already sort of introduced, but now with the king, and now with even deeper consequences. From time to time, as we go through these kingdoms and then they split, God would even send prophets, and the prophets would, would usually would say, there's something you need to know right now, and sometimes they'd look far out into the future. And eventually, while they um, had sort of survived, they certainly did not thrive or flourish, but they survived through um, this Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Greek Empire, and then they're in the Roman Empire. We'll talk about that in just a minute. These, writings, these writings are collected until Malachi. Here they found themselves, they're, they're back in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a shell of what it used to be. They rebuild the temple, and it's a shack compared to the glory of what was there before. And then, for 400 years, the Bible goes silent. That's the Old Testament. We're done. For 400 years, there's this silence. And, and it, it might be that over those 400 years that, that God's people of the plan, they may have actually forgotten that what they were part of was part of a rescue mission. Because what they got really interested in and involved in was a kingdom. We want our king back. We want our land back. And we're going to wait for this king to come and create the borders we need and the security we need and the strength we need. We want our kingdom back. We want our king back. And as they waited over 400 years, like almost any nation, there became this bit of sort of infighting about the right way to be in the, in the waiting period. While God seems to not be moving this story forward. Here are kind of the four ways, kind of the four camps, and probably there are others too, you know, nuance. But we're not going for nuance, we're going for big story, short time. One of those ways that people sort of responded to the fact that they'd been kicked out of the kingdom and they'd been scattered throughout Asia was political revolt. Some decided it was time to fight. So they would ambush the rulers that um, were around them. They would, they would scheme. They were essentially terrorists. Violence was the way forward for them to, to bring the kingdom back and reclaim it for ourselves. This is what we want. In the Bible, you can read about them when it talks about the zealots. The zealots were those who wanted uh, to revolt politically and reclaim the kingdom by force. Another group were those who said, actually, the best way for us to handle this moment while we're like out scattered to the winds and we have no clear king and all these things, and as we wait, the best way is just to, to cooperate. Let's just live with the situation that it is. Let's make the best of it as we can. Partner with the powers that um, God has placed over us. In the Gospels, that's Herod and this group called the Sadducees. 
let's just go on and just cooperate. See how this goes. Another group that gets a lot of play in the Gospels is this group um, that says, you know what we really need to do is we need to keep the law that God gave us. That group's called the Pharisees. And there was this thinking because of some of the things that the prophet said is, is it, and what they've noticed uh, during that time of conceit, if, if we can just be obedient to the law, if we can just follow every single scrap and yod and you know, section of it, the king will return. We'll get our kingdom back. All we need to do is obey, and he will return. If we obey, God will be prompted, even forced, to intercede for us. I was reminded by um, my study and a sermon I I heard uh, this week that they even believed that if everyone could just be obedient to the law for just one day, this is why the Pharisees were so passionate about following the law. They said, just one day, if Israel, if all of Israel would be obedient for just one day, then surely the king would come back. Does not, doesn't, when you just say that out loud, doesn't it just sound silly? I mean, I don't know you all that well. Some of you I know quite well. But I'm guessing there have been several thousand of laws broken between your wake-up time and your getting here. Just in this room! But the Pharisees were convinced if we could live a life of obedience, do all the things that God has commanded, he'll come back as king. The king will return. And then finally, there were those who uh, said, actually, the best thing to do is just withdraw. We can't handle all this chaos. We can't handle this thing. This is all bad. It's all ugly. It's all wrong. We're going to hang out in the desert. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually. Several groups would hang out in the desert and say, we're just going to wait this thing out. We're going we're to pray and we're going to fast and maybe the Lord will notice our holiness and, and maybe then the king will come. All of that mix and mash. And if you notice that, if you think about that impulse, there are versions of that impulse right now here for us. Isn't there? Is there some version of that that you sort of see looking around you when you think about the problems our nation faces? It's not unique to first century Jerusalem. So it's in this mishmash of stuff, this desire for a king to come and reestablish the the heyday of what they were all about. It's in that moment, for whatever reason, that God says it's time for the king to come. It is time for my promised Messiah to step in and move this this story forward once again. This is the moment amidst all that political revolt and cooperation and keeping the law and withdrawing. This is the moment. Turn to Mark chapter 1, if you would, please. And if you've got that Bible in front of you, uh, it's page 858. And in just a minute here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through all of the bolded section headings. And before I do that, I want to be really clear about something for all of you. The, the bolded section headings are not in the original Bible. Okay, I just want you to know that. Like, 
they're actually really helpful for us trying to study and find some part of the story or whatever else, but they weren't there from the beginning. But they're really helpful. In fact, I have a, I have a friend that whenever she would disciple women in college, she, she, they would, one of the very first things that they would do is they would memorize the section headings from the Gospel of John to just memorize the whole arc of the story. To say, we know kind of the story from beginning to end as we go through these section headings together. And today what I want to do is sort of use those section headings in a, in a slightly different way because Mark seems to want to do something unique in chapter 1, and I'm not going to preach on all 45 verses. But especially in the Gospel of Mark, the opening chapter sort of, then sort of explodes out as an explanation in the rest of the Gospel. It's sort of like um, sometimes we use phrases, and those phrases are, are laden with tons of stuff behind them. Like, we can fill in a whole bunch of detail when I just say things like, the boy who lived. So many of you now know, yeah, I know that story, right? And that's a Harry Potter boy. Or, Luke, I am your father. And all of a sudden, you fill in all this other stuff that you know is to come. And as it turns out, the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, does something really similar to that. It's like, it's going to show us in sort of, in, in like a tiny gospel, what the rest of the gospel is going to unfold for us. So we're just going to go through the, the section headings as a real quick way to say this is, this is what Jesus was about. Here it is. So the first thing that happens is it's not about Jesus at all. We read about it. We sang about it. John the Baptist prepares the way. And what we see from the very, very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, or in the Gospels at all, is that while it seems like God has been silent on this big stage, this moment is connected to that longing and waiting. That 400 years of waiting is now being fulfilled in this moment. And John the Baptist is the one who's going to sort of try to clear the road and prepare the way. And Jesus is one of those guys who comes to John the Baptist. And he's lived a life we know from um, other Gospels as, um, as a carpenter, and he, and he comes to John the Baptist, and John has been saying, this Messiah who's coming, I shouldn't even have the job of tying his sandals. And Jesus, that Messiah, comes and says, more than that, will you baptize me? Will you help me go through this sign that says I am fully identified with these people? I'm not apart or separate from them. I'm one of them. And then as if to drive the, f- the point even further, then Jesus is sent away into the desert to be tested. To say, this, this Messiah who's come is, is really human. He identifies with us. He's tested like we are. He knows hunger, yearning like we do. And then he comes back, and he says, the kingdom of God has come near. And he's talking about himself. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, rethink, believe this good news. This huge, long rescue story is it's, it's here now. It's happening. Repent and believe this good news. And there's lots of confusion about that because what were people expecting? A king. They'd forgotten about the rescue mission. 
Well, then we see a little bit more about what does it actually mean that the kingdom has come near. The, the first thing that we see is Jesus invites uh, some, uh, some people to follow him. He, he um, acquires his first disciples. He says, come, follow me. Follow me. Learn my ways. Be part of this story. Leave everything else behind that you thought your life was supposed to be about. Have you been building a life that's been built on some sort of cooperation or revolt or withdrawing or just being religiously obedient? Fill in the gaps for you. Whatever it is that you've been doing as you've been waiting for this moment, he says, I'm here. Set that all aside and follow me. And some do. And they learn what it is for the kingdom to actually unfold in front of them. Because the next thing that we see then is as these disciples are watching and others are around, he, he drives out an impure spirit. This is what the Messiah will do. We'll confront the powers that we don't know how to confront on our own. That's what the king will do. That's what the anointed is about. And they thought it was just Rome. Jesus came for something bigger, more intense, more difficult than fighting off an empire that now is dust. He came and he confronted and drove out an impure spirit. And then he goes on, not only to driving out spirits, but making people well. He's interested all the way in this creation story of shalom and fullness and goodness with God, with one another, and with the stuff of the earth. He heals. And then he does this thing that's really eminently human. He, he withdraws and he prays in a solitary place. And what we learn in that moment actually is that Jesus gives us an example to follow and, and we learn how our words are supposed to be used. One of the things that we learn about how our words are to be used is they're supposed to be used in prayer. Our words are to be used in developing a relationship and um, sharing and speaking with um, the God of the universe. We're supposed to use our words in prayer. But then secondly, he says, okay, now let's go travel. I need to go preach. I need to go share. You disciples, you follow me. You do this too. You pray and you preach. You thought I was the only preacher in the room. Turns out you are too. This is how we are to use our words, to use them in prayer. And then we're to use them to tell of the grace and mercy and magnitude of who God is. We pray and we preach, we work and we rest. And then finally, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. What we see in the Gospels and the way the Gospels are understood as we read the rest of the New Testament is that it's really clear that, that the Messiah, God's King, is invested in systemic change. He's on a rescue mission for the all of creation. Romans says that all of creation groans until Christ was returned. He's on this systemic, huge canvas of a rescue mission job. But you know how that happens? Through one person 
at a time as he comes to heal you and as he comes to heal me. See, we're now part of the plan. We're part of the plan. We're part of what God has in store when he's on this rescue mission. We're in it. This is wholly and completely different than anything people were expecting. And we're like, well, why? Why is that different? I'll just tell you why. Let me, let me ask you a quick question. How many of you bought a ticket hoping to win $1.6 million this week? Raise your hand if you did it. I, I did it. Come on. Yeah. Now let me ask you another question. Of those people who bought that $1 ticket, and the rest of you can just right now pretend what you do with $1.6 billion. How much of your dream was about your own safety and security? How much of your dream for $1.6 billion was about developing a better life for yourself and those right around you? See, that's what we do. That's the kind of kingdom we want. But Jesus says, no, actually, that's, that's not the kingdom that I'm after. I'm not after for these tiny little islands of safety and security and walls. That's that's the kind of kingdom we want. We work hard for it. But even hundreds of years before Jesus came, God was really clear. I'm interested in a different kind of kingdom that's going to accomplish something very different. We talk about um, the Old Testament sometimes obliquely, sometimes with great clarity, but I want to point out this passage to you. This is Isaiah 53. Isaiah was a prophet. He addressed kings with all the problems and all the lack of justice and mercy and equality that were in those, in those kingdoms. But every now and then, prophets also see something out ahead. And he shared this thing 600 years before Jesus was born. This is what, this is what God's about. Tell me if it doesn't resonate with what little or a lot you know about Jesus. This little section, when it's sectioned out on our Isaiah um, in our Bible, um, is, uh, is called The Suffering Servant, and you can turn to page 634 if you want to follow along on your Bibles. Isaiah writes, 600 years before Jesus comes, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. After all, he was just a carpenter in a backwater town. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and, and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
sounds like this Messiah is going to go through an ordeal and go through it on our behalf. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, Isaiah writes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the, the catastrophe we all are now heavy laden with. He's, he's laid it now on this suffering servant. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away. Sounds like he was arrested. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. Sounds like he was only arrested, but executed. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is a suffering servant. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It sounds like this death is not the end of the story. More is going to come. He doesn't just die. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The New Testament calls that resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. The work he's accomplished is not just for himself. And he will bear their iniquities. We don't have to carry them. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Six hundred years before Christ came and walked on the earth. And he came and he said, the kingdom of God has come near. This thing you've been longing for is now present in me. Follow me. Live with me. Copy me. You see, the kingdom of God is invested in, in more than simply um, just a, a plot of land. He's interested in redemption. He's interested in um, the people of the plan, but now that's expanded. So, you know, here's the interesting thing. God takes this moment and says, I'm going to work through the people of Israel and then expand my invitation to all of humanity. For years and years and years and years and years and decades and eons, God's people talked about um, the God of Israel. Israel had sole, unique possession of this God. 
But Christ came. The anointed one came, and he changed who gets to belong. It says this way in Galatians. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Stop. That's the whole Old Testament. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might all receive adoption to sonship. This is such a massive concept. I don't want you to miss it. Later on in Galatians, um, what he says simply is this. It used to be what we would talk about the God of Israel, that God was owned by a people. But he's like, now I'm going to return that. Now I'm going to talk about the Israel of God. God actually is now going to say, I'm going to adopt you all. You're part of the plan. When you say yes to following me, you are now part of the plan of redemption. That's what the Christ does. You're in. You're part of it. Did you know that? This simple little invitation is actually really big. It points us on the on, on the way to a path where we get to be part of God's ongoing story. We now have our hero. We've been waiting for our hero to be revealed, unveiled, sit before us for 900 pages in my Bible, and now, finally, he's here. And he's pushing history forward in a plan for redemption, in a work for renewal, and an opportunity for salvation. That's what the Christ has come to do. And what I want you to know, friends, is he's inviting you to be part of the story. When he says, come and follow me, his voice is stretching right through the pages and into your heart. This whole story has been unfolding from, from creation all the way through to conceit and now to Christ and saying, are you in? Are you ready to be part? If you are, friends, let me just ask you, what do you need to set aside? If this story makes the imminent sense to you that it makes to me, and, and he's called out to you, saying, come, follow me, what are the things you've been holding as you've been waiting? What are the things you've sort of been grasping on that are keeping you from fully following Jesus as Messiah? It's time to set them aside. To follow the one who gives you sonship and calls you one of his own who says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So I'm going to ask you, just in this few moments of silence before Jane comes to pray with us, let me just ask you, what are you holding that you need to get rid of?
Father, what an amazing grace it is that you call us your children, that you have adopted us as your own. And because you care for us and because we know that you love the world that you have come to rescue, because you are the Lord of all and you invite us, you call us to come to you and to ask you for help, we will. God, we thank you for the ways uh, that we see your goodness all around us and the faces of one another and the care that we receive from one another. And yet, God, we are also so aware when we just lift our eyes up, um, not only in our own selves, but in the world around us of broken shalom. So, God, we come this morning and cry out for your comfort and your care on behalf of those who are suffering especially. We ask, God, that you would draw near. This morning, we pray especially for the people of Pittsburgh, for the worshiping community at the Tree of Life Synagogue. God, we pray for your comfort, for your tender care, for your hope for Messiah and for Shalom. Jesus, your word tells us that you yourself are our peace, the one who tore down the wall of hostility to bring peace, to reconcile all people to yourself. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. And God, for the world and for our nation, as elections are causing unrest and fear and targeted violence, we pray again, God, for your peace and for your church to live in the world as your kingdom people with wisdom and love and words that would help us point to you for your glory. Help us, God, to follow you in the midst of this place that you have called us to live as your people. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we think of the Culver family and pray, God, that they would know your deep love as they miss and say goodbye to Kim. We pray for Zach Ramirez and for Ed and Debbie and Sacha. God, we cry out and ask for your healing. We ask for the comfort and care of your people to be known. And for Ed and Debbie and Sacha especially, we ask for their trust in you when the way seems so unknown. And God, for each one of us in this room, we carry in our hearts and our minds and our bodies different longings and burdens and hopes. So Lord, because you love us, because you care so deeply about us, we take a moment just to name what's on our hearts before you. God, help us to trust you as Lord of all, the one who knows us and loves us. We need you. We want to follow you. God, we thank you for this promise that in Jesus Christ and by your Spirit, God, you have come to be with us, to dwell with us, to abide with us. So God, would you comfort us in that? Would you encourage us in that?